Hello and welcome to The Art of Self-Belief, the podcast series shining a spotlight on women in leadership roles and women who are making an impact on the world of tech and business, on tackling diversity in the workplace, of course, The Art of Self-Belief. I'm your host, Estella Edwards, an award-winning changemaker, leadership coach and trainer. Over the past three decades of working across all three sectors, I discovered my calling, a passion for supporting young people and women in leadership to succeed and reach their fullest potential. But this podcast is not about me. In each episode, I have honest conversations with women at the helm of industry. Women of colour who occupy a historic seat at the top and change makers from across all sectors who are paving new ways to make workplaces inclusive. Whether you're seeking fresh perspective, relatable role models, or guidance in how you can ramp up your career, confidence, regardless of your background, the art of self-belief is going to open your mind and your heart. And today we have with us the incredible Justice Williams, MBE. Justice and I have a long-standing relationship It's been over a decade. We've been cooperative components on many social causes which are a passion to us, whether that be young women, whether it be justice supporting me through my ventures, through enterprise and delivering. I guess you've always been at the helm, Justice. Justice, I know you're incredible (laughs) and notorious but for those who don't know you um who are you and what has your journey been we want that inside of you of this inspiring woman who started her her journey from her school had aspirations i know this then there was a diversion that actually your self-belief, you continue to rise, even to be ranked as top 100 women. You've been in the cosmopolitan, ranked as an inspirational woman. Could you just map and plot a little bit of that journey and give us some inspiration today, Justice? No pressure then. Thank you, Estella, and thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. So for those of you that don't know me, my name is Justice. I am the proud co-founder of two lovely little children um, that keep me on my feet and keep me young. And at the moment, what I am doing is I am a multi-award winning entrepreneur and a business strategist. And I specialize in terms of working with women so that they can build and monetize their personal brand. So basically how helping them to kind of package their skills, their experience and their expertise into products to create recurring revenue and income streams. Because I'm really passionate about empowering women financially and um, because when we empower the woman, we're empowering the families and ultimately we're empowering the communities, which then in turn empowers society as a whole. Wow, where do we start? Going back to that little 10-year-old who was um, identified as a gifted child in school, 
and had to attend grammar school on the weekends. And now for some people, that's their worst nightmare. But for me, it was a dream. I absolutely loved it. So on the Saturday, I used to attend King Edward's in Edgebaston. And I had to attend these special classes that were put on for gifted children. And it was great. And I remember my dad turning around to me and says, you, you are going to be a lawyer. So what you need to do is pop along to your careers advisor at, at school and find out all the steps that you need to take to get there. Now, at the time, I know if you're a younger person listening, it might come as a shock. This was prior to the internet. So there was no internet, definitely no social media. Well, actually, the internet was introduced when I was in year nine at school. And we had the traditional careers advisor that get out the book and say, right, this is what you need to do to become a lawyer. So you have to go to college after you're gaining your GCSEs. You need to go and study your A-levels, go on to do a degree, followed by your your your, your LPC and, and gain some work experience and so on and so on. So my journey was pretty much mapped out at that point and it was great. And I was doing all the right things up until the point of, you know, for many different reasons, which, you know, we could spend hours going into right now. Um, three months before I was due to sit my A-levels exams, I dropped out of college, wanted that freedom. It was newfound freedom. I'd kind of escaped from the strict household and I was living by myself. I'd passed my driving test, had a car, discovered the pub and cider, <laughs> where I'd often spend uh, uh, my student lunch breaks. And, you know... What that meant was that I'd lose my place at university. So fast forward a few years, at the, the age of 21, instead of graduating from, from law school with a first-class degree in law and politics, I graduated from the University of Life with a first-class criminal record. And instead of wearing the gown, it was the magistrate that did, and sadly sentenced to 28 days at Her Majesty's pleasure, um, HMP Brockhill. Wow, um, justice. So what did that actually do for your self-belief um, being uh, an aspiring young person who had life mapped out to graduating uh, with HMP. So what did that do for you? And let us understand sure. what so, happened from... So for me personally, maybe it was because I'd built up this kind of tough outward exterior where I'd kind of... You know, people used to say for many years, oh, Justice, you're quite cold. Like I had this kind of detached um, level of emotion. I wasn't that phased or bothered. I think the part that did bother me is when obviously family finding out and then that impact it had on then my parents and then my siblings. And I think that then was the point when it was like a wake-up call. Um, it was my my stepmom that came and, and figured out somehow, up to this day, I don't know how, <laughs> of all the places that I was there. Um, and she, she'd managed to wrangle a visit. And it was kind of a surprise because I thought, well, you'd obviously have to send out visiting orders for people to come and see you. So I said, oh, you've got a visit. And I was like, well, it must be my solicitor because I was appealing um, the decision. Uh, but they said, you have to wait 15 days. And in essence, I was only going to serve 15 days because it was less than a four-year sentence, so you do do half. So it was kind of a bit pointless and appealing because you have to serve the first 15 days anyway before you could submit an appeal. So I popped off to the, the visitor room and was shocked to see um, my stepmom there and a few of my younger siblings, and it was just literally... I think that was the soul-crushing part of it. Um, and, oh, your dad's very disappointed, you know. Told your family to disown you and have nothing to do with you. What about justice, the, the fact that when... For all the viewers listening who may have gone off track and got a criminal record, 
What about the the stigma and the perception around getting a job and those aspirations and the law career going to pass? Yeah. I mean, pretty much, you know, it was ironic that I was trying to pursue a career in law and here I am at the age of 21 with a criminal record. So for me, you know, at first it was very angry, um, angry with everybody else but myself. And then I had to say, well, actually, now you have to actually be accountable for your decisions because you had certain opportunities growing up that other young people did not have. Um, And it's easy to, you know, for young people, especially back then, you know, having a criminal record was like, you know, very much frowned upon. Not to say that it's trendy or or in now, but there's more um, opportunities for people who are considered, what as they call, societal called ex-offenders, you know, and rehabilitation and getting into programs. But back then it would be even harder for you to kind of get employment. So for me, I had to just say, well, actually, what does my life look like now? Um, And, you know, somebody once said to me, well, the beauty about being at rock bottom (laughs) is that the only way is up. So I had to look at it from a positive aspect. And, you know, for me, I had to just just kind of go on a journey of self-discovery. Okay, well, what does life look like now? And what were some of those steps? Can you give us some insight, the tangible? Sure. So the first thing was just getting out there and meeting new people and getting work experience. So I just thought, okay, well, I can't get a job. Um, I'm living in the inner city where, unfortunately, employers would look at the postcode of where you came from and think, oh, okay, we probably don't want that person working here. There was a lot of discrimination around that. So I thought, okay, let me get some work experience. And I went and visited a local youth charity. I went along, I got involved and I was like, this is amazing. Uh, is there any kind of, you know, voluntary roles or opportunities? So I went back to the job centre and the job centre said, well, if they can let you work there for 30 hours a week as a volunteer, you don't need to come and sign on at the job centre every single week. And I was like, great, because, you know, that was the only opportunity that I had at that time. I didn't think I could get a job. But being around young people and being treated and given opportunities to do training and get development, every single free training course that they sent my way, I ran with it with both arms. So it was one day training, half day trainings, short weekend residentials at Fircroft College in Selly Oak. And I was doing all the training that I could do. And, and through that, you know, it built my confidence. So what was it that actually built your confidence and all these array sure. of training? Because there's all these opportunities for free and not everyone perceives it like that, all young people. So what were the specific things that you took away from volunteering all the courses? I think for me, a lot of the training, you know, once you, I always say knowledge is power, but knowledge also helps to diminish fear. So when people lack self-belief, often as well, it's because they don't know. And it's also said the fear of the unknown. So for me, being equipped with all this knowledge gave me confidence to do a better job. I took my volunteer role as if I was working and I was getting paid. So I took it very, very seriously. Um, and as a young person at that time, I had no kids. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have any of these things to worry about. But what it did, it, it reignited um, a passion, um, which I didn't know I had. So I'd never w- worked with young people apart from volunteering at my mum's play scheme when I was 14 years of age. And then I got a passion for working with young people. So tell me more about reigniting a passion that I didn't have, because that sounds to me like you're discovering talents or that greatness was called out because you was in a particular environment. Definitely. I think that all the previous skills I'd learned through 
previous jobs I'd done, through volunteering experience, through helping out my mom when I used to actually have to get up in the morning and she used to drag me along with her to all her jobs <laughs> and that she used to do on a Saturday, like working in the kitchen in a, the local takeaway and then peeling potatoes and washing dishes in the freezing cold. All that tenacity, that hard work and all those skills kind of started to come to the forefront and that passion allowed me to now fuel my purpose. And Justice, that brings me on to anecdotally, um, when I was reviewing you, you said that your entrepreneurship was by accident. So that links in nicely. So jumping from facts that you said you got into entrepreneurship through volunteering and working in the community. Yeah. So next stage. Yeah, so literally, I my time there, I felt that like I'd outgrown it. I'd given loads of opportunity, um, ideas and opportunities to the directors. They weren't really kind of feeling my opportunity, so to speak. So I thought, you know what? I've got the, I'm confident now because I've got the skills, I've got the experience to step out uh, and do this by myself. And I feel that as well, young people naturally as well are more likely to take risks when they're younger. They're not as fearful as people who are like now I have think about okay my kids pay the bills and things like that but when you're younger and you don't have to worry about so much pressures you kind of take more risk and I was like you know I'm going to start my own enterprise start my own business and that's what I did and you know I went on to kind of get some funding through the Barakabi Trust and luckily enough they said look we don't want to just give you the money because we want to invest in you and not just your your enterprise we also are partnering with a PR company just to help get your story out there. So what was your actual business and what were the steps to starting your enterprise for someone who's navigated that journey? You've now got the learning, you've reignited your passion. Mm -hmm. What were some of those steps? So for me, it was just identifying, first of all, what did I want to do? So what was the actual offer? Who did I want to help and support? I knew it was still young people. But what I realised is I naturally had identified a gap. So when you're starting a business, you have to identify a gap. You have to be solving a problem. And the thing was that there was a lot of funding going around to support young people in recreational activities and the arts. But I was like, well, this isn't really sustainable because you would get funding. And at the end of the project, you're supposed to have a zero in the bank account. You're supposed to spend all the money. And then you're going for more money. So I was thinking, well, there must be another way around this. And that's when social enterprise, you know, was, you know, came to the UK and, you know, there was more talk around it. So I thought, this is a great business model. We can actually charge for services, generate income, have income streams coming in that's not just reliant on grants. So tell us, for our audience, tell us what is a social enterprise sure. then and, and how do you generate? And Definitely. So a social enterprise is a vehicle um, to tackle a social issue. And there's very many different legal structures from a CIC, which is the most commonly known community interest company. But for example, you've got things like the big issues, an example of a well-known social enterprise. It can be any type of business, but ultimately you want to tackle a social issue or a problem um, through also a business model. So it's about also generating income, but ultimately the social enterprise, how it differs from a commercial business is that it's not for personal profit. So that money doesn't come in line. Any profits it makes doesn't come in line your own bank account. It's actually re usually reinvested back into the organisation for the social objectives for which you set about kind of serving and the audience who you served or your community, so to speak. So that's kind of like in a nutshell what a social enterprise is. There's actually no kind of official definition. You'll get the government definition, the diction definition. 
but that's kind of my definition of what a social enterprise is. So it's about tackling a social issue. I think what I learned through that was the importance of mentorship. And that's when I met my first mentor because I was actually exposed in the press in terms of getting that media exposure. And I was in The Guardian and my my first mentor picked up, read my story and was like, you know, I want to I want to help and support this young woman. And, you know, I met this um, this uh, gentleman who was a director of a company and he helped me with my business planning, my strategic planning and to really kind of understand those kind of fundamental things about how to build a successful business. It's great to tackle the social problems, but you have to look at the business side of things as well. Um, so how did you find looking at the the sustainable arm when as a founder that everything's bottlenecked with you and often my experience that with social enterprises that the uh, those leading are so passionate that they don't always look at the business model and about generating so it's tends to be project to project. Yes. Also that there's many women who lead on them. So Definitely. I mean, back then, this was back in mid-2000s, so 2005, 2006, and I was in my 20s. And, and to be quite honest, I didn't have a clue. And my um, mistake was that I did focus heavily on the social, making that social impact but not focusing on the business side of things, which meant that my social enterprise didn't last more than two, three years at that time. And I had to take that reflection on board and say, well, actually, okay, at the time it felt soul-destroying, crushing, embarrassing, humiliating. It felt like a failure and it did not my confidence. But then my mentor says to me, fail forward. Take those lessons that you've learned and now fail forward. So while that might not have been a success... What did it teach you that you can now implement into the next thing that you do? And at that point, I says, I'm going back to college and I'm going to go and study business and finance. And I did that for two years at uh, City College Hansworth. And I says, you know what? I need to take this time out to really understand these fundamental things because I had no one else apart from my mentor. And he obviously was busy running his his company. what were some of those fundamental things that you look at? justice and go here's the reflection this is what we're doing different for our millennials who are listening to this women who are just wanting to branch out yeah or any audience listening what was those fundamental so for me the first thing and the most important for me at the time is pay attention to the money pay attention to the numbers because ultimately if you're running a social enterprise or running a commercial business the only way it's going to be viable if it's turning and generating not just an income, but also making a profit. Because ultimately, if it's just turning an income and you're going to break even at the end of the year, unless you're just doing it for the passion, you may as well get a nine to five. The whole purpose of it is generating a profit, but also having a plan. And a business plan is not something just there to kind of sit on the shelf and or get funding for. It's actually to keep you on task and to keep you on plan, it's a, a working document. It's something that you should be re- reviewing on a month-to-month basis, doing your quarterly reviews. But ultimately, you need to have a strategy. So having a plan is one thing, but having a strategy is the next thing. It's looking at the bigger picture. So not just working in the business, which I was doing day-to-day, working in the business, toiling at the land, so <laughs> to speak. But what about working on the business, the vision and the direction of where the business is going? 
and then to ask for help. It was very hard for me to sometimes ask for help, uh, but it was one of the things that actually helped me to move forward. So when I actually said, you know what, there's all these resources out there, they're there for the taking. So I said, oh, can I have a bit of that? Oh, can I have a bit of that? And that helped me to grow and then also to bring people in. So don't always think that you are the expert and you know everything. Better you be a master of a trade rather than, you know, like a jack of all, so fit or a Jill rather, or whoever you choose to identify. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so for me, it was a case of bringing on other people who complemented my skill set. So just as you said, you packing a number of things there. So working on the business. Yeah. What is working on the business for those who don't know what working on the business sure. is? So in, in terms of, I'll give you a real life example. So for me, working in my business is working with my clients directly, whether it's trading time for many, doing one-to-one coaching, um, et cetera, creating courses or whatever. That's working in the business. Working on the business is about the long-term strategy if I want to grow and scale my business, where does my, what does my business look like 12 months from now, two years from now, three years from now, 10 years from now? So it's working on the bigger picture. So every business should have a vision, but ultimately the mission is how you're going to get there. So that's the in the business, the on the business is working on that vision and actually creating a plan of action on how you're going to achieve that. And along that way, making sure that you bring in the experts and the support and the resources that you need to make it happen. So just the reality is that when someone's maybe starting their business yeah. or they've got their idea and like you said, they could be honed in on the uh, the, fo- the passion, the drive for the audiences. And I've been speaking to, to, to many women and I've noted the, the working on or the business plan, people might think, can I read? Do I really have time mm-hmm. to draft this huge document as of old? You know what a business plan is. So does it really have to be a real huge document? What What are some of the maybe use the layman terms? Sure. What could actually help and assist? Because how yeah. do we balance that with time? Because that's a lot going on. Especially when you don't know. Of course. And also as well, visit the show notes this episode. I'll send you a link to what I call my one-page business plan. So first of all, start off with your one-pager. And that's where you look at, first of all, what's your value proposition, your USP? What is it that you're offering that sets you apart from your competitors? Then you're going to look at your audience. So who is your ideal audience, your ideal client, your ideal customer? And how does what you offer solve their problem, their challenge, or satisfy their desire or their aspirations. And then you look at what does my business model look like? Now, what is a business model? Literally, it's how you package the value that you offer and deliver it to your customer. And everybody's business model can be different, but still offer the same product or service. So there's typically three types of business model to summarize. You have the DIY, which is the do-it-yourself And that's where you have something, say, for example, a digital course, a workbook that someone could download. It's very light touch. There's no direct kind of communicational support from yourself. It's something that they just take away. For example, the DIY would be a a recipe kit. Here's the recipe. You go and make your own dinner. (laughs) Yeah. Then you have the done with you. The done with you where there's a bit of hand-holding, a bit of more support, a bit more guidance in terms of... Um, you as the expert with your clients. 
DWY in this aspect of an example would be, for example, a cookery class or a workshop. So now you're not just getting the recipe, you're actually being guided by the chef and you're attending a cookery class and that chef is giving you some guidance about how to create that perfect meal and you may then dine amongst friends and have some conversation and actually learn in that way. Then you have what we call the done for you, the DFY. And that's more your premium, your more high level service where actually the client just says, take my money and, and hand me my, 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 my product or service. And say, for example, now that would be then the private chef coming to your house, taking over your kitchen, bringing all the recipe ingredients. You just sit at the table and you'll serve that three course meal. So that's an example of the kind of like the business model in the simplest of terms. So you need to think about where do my products or services fit Mm -hmm. to meet my customers' needs and how can I diversify those or bundle those together to meet different customers where they're at. That then creates recurring revenue and income streams for your business because I'm very passionate, especially post-pandemic, to encourage people to not rely on one source of income. It's all about multiple streams of income. What are some of the most common problems that you've encountered when coaching people? Because I, um, jumping from facts, that you've coached over 3,000 individuals in terms of um, coaching event groups, your online programs. What are some of them? common challenges? I would say some of the common challenges and the biggest one now working primarily with women is that they are struggling with their mindset, the mindset gremlins, the confidence, the self-belief and it all ties in with actually government research, government reports cite that actually one of the things that hold women back from truly succeeding and stepping into their true potential in business isn't about the product idea. They've got great ideas that have great potential, but it's actually the self-belief that actually I can do this. I can be successful. I deserve to charge this amount for my products and service. So I think that is one of the biggest challenges that they face. It's around the confidence. It's a lack of self-esteem, especially as well, if you've had children, you know, and I've experienced it myself, when you're isolated, you're in that cocoon just with your child at home, what I called the the parent groundhog day, when it's kind of like the kids are <laughs> the like brain mush. eat, sleep, poop, repeat. That's all they're doing day in, day out, and it becomes like groundhog day. You ultimately can lose yourself um, and your self identity because you just become a mum. Um, but actually, you get your when you then getting back out. It's like, oh, where's my space now? It's like you have a bit of an identity crisis sometimes. Where do I fit within society? And going back into enterprise, do you have the confidence? Can I do this? Can I manage being a mum and, and running a business and, and all those things? And if we're not getting mentoring, we're not getting coaching, we're not getting support, we're not having that community of women who have walked that walk before us and says, girl, been there, done that. This is how I tackle some of these things to give us that insight, to give us that learning and that, that, that kind of bit of boost and inspiration. We will often struggle And that's why I do what I do. So that's why I've created a community in terms of my subscription box and my community so that that those women can have support because it's often isolating. And when you are socially isolated sometimes, it can lack your confidence and your your self-belief. So just delving a bit more where you talked about um, women losing themselves after motherhood. 
for me, the the whole reasoning around the art of self-belief is because what I personally found is that well-being, the fundamentals about well-being, and when I talk about well-being, that that then leads on to me looking at the self-concept and implementing that because when one doesn't feel good about yourself, yes. it's not so much the external factors. And we've talked at length also about women and imposter syndrome. And certainly, um, even inviting you here today, um, in terms of the art of self-belief, because um, I too am one of your fortunate VVIP <laughs> clients and have done that as a, a woman because of one the brand and I recognize your value and what I personally wanted to achieve and knowing as a coach what I would go through what do you think that the art of self-belief is going to do especially this first series for women and the wider especially coming from different generations our first series with women from color for me, I think it's very insightful. And as I mentioned to you kind of earlier and at the very beginning when, I, when you, you know, expressed what you wanted to do, and I just said, well, you know, your program's The Art of Self-Belief. That's got to be your podcast title because ultimately it's a massive underserved audience. We already know that I think it's approximately 12% of podcasts are hosted by women. So there's a big disparity already there. And then we add in the women of colour the numbers shrink even further. When we look at the statistics around women in leadership roles and what they need to do to break that, what is the perceived glass ceiling, which often will not exist because it's in our mind, um, what we need to do there, the support and the insight and those stories and those anecdotes are hard to come by. So I feel that what the podcast now will do, it will give that, that audience the opportunity to immerse themselves into somebody else's lived experience and journey but also it will give them hope. It will give them inspiration. It will give you knowledge and know-how. It gives you insight, but it will also give you some answers. Some of the answers that you probably have been questioning, but don't know where to find those answers to some of the questions. And well, how did you do that? So you'll often see kind of now on YouTube, young people going around and interviewing people who drive these big fancy cars and goes, how do you make your money? <laughs> um, and that's what they do. And then they get the insight and they say, well, I did this and I invested in NFT or I was in the stock market or my law firm account or the woman's driving the belly. She goes, oh, my husband, I married a rich man. Or actually I'm a, you know, a director of a multi-billion pound corporation. And it gives you that insight, but insight then also gives you that inspiration because people want to know that the know-how. We can see all the kind of the, the outward imagery of success or what success looks like to somebody who's aspiring to be like their role model. But they may necessarily not know how did that person get there because often we don't share. So how did you feel justice when you were in Cosmopolitan and Marie Claire? Uh, I think that when they told me, oh, we're going to be creating a special award for you at this Women of the Year Awards this year and it's going to be the most inspirational woman of the year, I think my heart <laughs> restricted <laughs> a few times because for me it was like, me like why would you give me that award and it, the imposter syndrome you know came very um front of mind and it was very much like 
well, what have I really done to deserve this? Because so what is the imposter syndrome first? I have to just jump sure. in. Now. The in so the justice we're talking about and this inspiring, great British menu, let's go there. Oh, the great British menu, that reminds me. We'll touch about that again in a minute. But I feel like with me, imposter syndrome is that fear of being found out. It's kind of like you're 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 faking it or you're you're not deserving of those opportunities. And that somebody's gonna all of a sudden say, there, she's an imposter. And so it naturally, you know, knocks people's confidence. People feel like they're not deserving of opportunities, that actually this should be for somebody else other than me. Was that your thought or something that someone said to you? Both. And I think at that time, I was very much a people pleaser. I always wanted to. And I think that came from also as a childhood, wanting to please my dad, saying he, I'm going to be a lawyer and then not doing that and trying to build myself back up. I then always had this kind of people pleasing mentality. I'm going to do good. I want make, to make sure everybody's happy. I don't want to upset people. Uh, and then for me, you know, somebody says, oh, why is she in the magazine or... Why did she get an MBE? What's she done? Well, based on your story, based on what you delivered, it's interesting. The point that I want to come here with you is that you thought it, did I deserve it? My yes, heart. yes. Yet you've done all of this. So there's a disparity. Can you understand what that is now? Definitely. Or what it was? Yeah, and I think it's also as well, that's the art of self-belief. That's what it boils back down to. Like, if I did not believe in myself any opportunity that came my way and I turned down quite a few opportunities because I just didn't think I was probably deserving of it then. I also thought, well, actually, there's other people that, you know, have done better or more than me that are more deserving. And also as well, a lot of women may grow up in an environment where they're not necessarily spoken those words of affirmation that you're going to be great, that you're awesome and that you've got these talents and skills and abilities. But also as well, if we don't believe it in our core within ourselves it will naturally affect us. So when good things do happen, sometimes we self-sabotage. So what do we have to do then, Justice, to lead from within? Okay, to lead from within ultimately is starting with that self-belief. And it can be done in many ways. Some people, they like to journal and they like to get their thoughts out and reflect. I would encourage positive words of affirmation and, it, you know, whether it becomes your daily mantra also as well, find your tribe, surround yourself with like-minded women who are on a similar to journey to you, whose values align, but ultimately as well, be in the room with people who are three, four, five, ten steps ahead of where you want to be, because that will naturally raise your confidence, raise your aspirations and help to kind of motivate you. And just actually that lady's similar to me, she's had a similar journey, it's not necessarily been perfect, but she's had challenges and barriers, but she's overcome that. That One of the fundamental skills to being an entrepreneur is resilience. It's that bounce back that actually going to prison didn't end my career or my journey. It just changed the direction. And I say to people, sometimes you may have to take a U-turn. Just make sure that you're not going down a dead end because it's okay to redesign your life. It's okay to change the direction of what you thought you was going to do um, long-term into your career because things happen in life, but always be willing to invest in yourself. And ultimately, if you invest in yourself, it will naturally tell you, you know, subconsciously, I'm deserving. You know, I remember when I was going to put myself onto my first training course 
and it was a hundred pounds. And my 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 gremlin said to me, a hundred pounds? It's bloody expensive. You know, I'm not paying a hundred pounds. I'm not worth a hundred pounds. But it wasn't saying that the course wasn't worth a hundred pounds. It was a me subconsciously telling myself I wasn't worth So you're now talking pounds. about the gremlin, the subconscious for those um, who are listening or watching. So Justice is talking about our subconscious and I guess that's where all our videos are or things that we replay. So we have our subconscious and our conscious and our conscious mind is where we're inspired, our creativity and then sometimes the subconscious where... We might draw from the past, didn't do very well at that. So then that stops you. Um, Because is the gremlin really real? Well, that's the thing. And and it's a case of you have to be willing to do the work. And sometimes that work is daily. You often hear coaches who are at the multi-million pound level would say, um, new level, new devil. (laughs) So they're saying that actually when you start and you get to that, you know, and in the, the hip-hop community, more money, more problems. <laughs> Do you understand? So they're saying that actually as you rise and you go up, it's a, that actually this work that we have to do, it's a lifelong journey. We can't just say, hey, mama, I made it and we were there and we're going to, you know, stay at that level. Personal development and kind of constantly pouring into yourself has to be a lifelong journey. You touched on earlier talking about self-care and taking care of yourself. That's a part of the art of self-belief, you need to be worthy to know that actually I need to put myself first. And sometimes people see that as a controversial statement. They're like, oh, well, you're a mum, Justice. Shouldn't you put your kids first? Or no, because ultimately if I'm not the best that I can be, I'm not going to be the best parent to my, I can't give the best version of myself to my children. So I will put myself first and I will make sure that I'm having my quarterly spa days, child-free, And I will invest in that, whatever the price may be, because I see it as an investment. I don't look at a price and say it's too expensive. I always say to people, expensive is relevant to the individual. What might seem expensive to me is not expensive to somebody else, because ultimately it's tied to our values. Indeed. A £10,000 Birkin bag, you know, I don't know if you can get one for £10,000, maybe £30,000, is expensive to me. I don't have no value attached to a designer handbag, but a £10,000 holiday to me is a worthwhile investment. While some will say that's too expensive to spend on, you know, three weeks in the sun. So it's about what our values are attached to. So self-care and this whole journey of the art of self-belief is a lifelong journey and you have to be willing to invest in yourself. Being willing to invest, even if you have no money, you have your time. So Go around and surround yourself by women. Ask to shadow someone who's 10 steps ahead of you. Go and get some insight. Interview them. Go and ask them all the questions that you want to know the answer to. But also as well, while you have an ask, also have a gift, a give. How can you be of service, which is then your gift? You know, how can you also, you know, for example, for me, my first mentor, I offered to work for his business um, for like 10 hours a week for free. And on top of that, he also paid me. But that was my gift because then he said, okay, one day a week you will come into my office and sit in the chair and I'll give you a mentoring session. And he taught me so much gems during that time. So that was my gift. So ultimately what you have to look at is podcasts like this one, books, a lot of stuff that's out there for free or low cost. Immerse yourself in that. And then once you have some some kind of money to invest, look at courses, workshops, attending events, 
getting on. I know that you've got a group coaching program coming up as well. So the art of self-belief, programs like that, where you can actually, you know, go through that intensive, transformative process, but actually work, work, work alongside an expert like yourself that can take people through the, your signature framework and take them through a process, you know, get, get into masterminds. And as you grow, you know, your investment will grow. But I always say, be willing to invest in yourself if you're expecting others to invest in you. Absolutely. I remember many years ago um, when I trained as a neuro-linguistic practitioner, uh, NLP master, and I trained with um, Richard Bandler, the founder, and Paul McKenna. And I never forget, what one of my takeaways, there was many takeaways, but it was always about training with the best. Yeah. And I'd absolutely agree with you, Justice. I... Um, have always travelled to London to personally develop. I've done courses whilst I may not have articulated them uh, through much of my journey. I've always done that to develop and I've always worked with the best. And I agree with you about having a mentor or even some of the dignitary across the city of Birmingham. Why do I know all of them? Whether it's a police crime commissioner, our mayor, the chief fire officer or many councillors or members of parliament because I took the time to be able to build a relationship or even shadow just to be able to, as a woman, to be able to articulate with different audiences. It aligned in with our third sector organisation. So all what you're saying there, Justice, you've given so many nuggets, but I can't let you go just yet until you tell us from running a social enterprise with 40 people. Now you have a family for the women listening. Then in fact, now you are a solo entrepreneur, a, a brand expert, and you've got many things uh, coming up later on this year. That transition, what does that look like now? Definitely. I think for me, it was then doing that, that work around my own human design and um, how I communicate, my value system, etc. And one thing that I realise is actually, I like the freedom of entrepreneurship and what it gives me. And also as well, still keeping those social entrepreneurial values where making a, a good impact and a positive impact in someone's life. So for me, it became because people started messaging me on social media and just saying, Justice, are you inspiring me? I'm a mum like you, or I'm a woman like you, or I've come from a background similar to yours and to see what you've achieved is now inspiring me to go and take action and move forward. So I became, again, accidental entrepreneur, accidental role model. <laughs> but it was in a case of, for me, I wanted to now do good in a different way. And in 2010, when my son was born, a month before that, when I was nine months, well, pretty much nine months pregnant, I got a call from San Francisco, from Levi Strauss. And they said, look, we're launching a global campaign um, called Shape What's To Come. And we're looking for global ambassadors. And you've been selected to be the ambassador for enterprise and social change. Wow. And I was like, sorry, I can't do it. Again, imposter syndrome. Um, and also I'm having a baby and I can't do all these things. And in my worst American accent, he was like, well, you know, women have babies all the time. <laughs> Like, just, also tell us more when you say that imposter syndrome. So you turned it down yeah, because because I felt that I couldn't do it. I wasn't. I didn't have the. Why me again? <laughs> we got the wrong person. I'm not the right woman for the job. 
Um, and I so think how have you overcome that now, Justice, for those listening? Yeah. Or this imposter syndrome. I know we're going to have a brilliant masterclass later on in the year. Because I also heard another woman going, I'm fighting this imposter syndrome. Yeah, and then so I, let's go there. I, I, what I realise now is that I never make a decision based on emotions. Nice. So in that time, I would say no straight away or think while the person's talking and I know they're going to ask me to do something that I probably feel like I don't want to do. Um I would be working through an excuse in my head of how I could say no. So mine was like, okay, well, obviously I'm nine months pregnant, so I can't possibly do this. Um, but now what I would then do is, and it was a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who was also in peer mentoring me. She's based in London. She works in TV. She's a producer, a director. And she said, what are you talking about? Grab that with both hands and talk to them. Ask them if they'll put a room on. Um, you know, at the conference, because we had to do kind of like media training and stuff like that in London, at the kind of like the PR um, PR uh, company's HQ, um, that I'll happily sit with Isaiah um, for you. And if you need to come and feed him, I'll, I'll call you and whatever else. And they were like, of course, they were treating us like celebrities. And it was literally like, anything you need, they sent a car to pick me up, first class train ticket to London, car to pick me up, take me to my hotel, stayed in a hotel, um, and all that and they were like look we can't really pay you but we'll give you seven thousand dollars for your expenses and I was like seven thousand dollars I was like and they was like yeah you know it's not much <laughs> we'll give you that for expense and I said well what do you want in return and they said all we want you to do is to do one event at our flagship Levi's store in Regent Street in London and that's going to be a few hours in an evening we'll pay again for your transport your hotel and whatever else um, and then we want you to once a week, online, record a video, write a blog, do something positive and also answer questions on our platform, which was kind of like a mini Facebook that they'd created for women to connect with us. And I was like, that's all. So I've got to just show up for one meeting in a year and then the rest is all from the comfort of my own home. Um, And so inside of me, I just said, you know what, this is great because it means that that perhaps and I don't need to work now for the next 12 months. I'm at home. I'd actually moved back home with my mum at that stage and I was like, you know what? My mom's not really charging me any money for bills and stuff like that. So let me just take my time and ease myself kind of back into the world of work and entrepreneurship. And I did that. And from that came other opportunities and so forth. And I always say opportunity begets opportunity. Yeah. So often do not turn it down. So now I don't make a decision solely based on emotions. And I always say the magic happens outside the comfort zone. So for me, if I feel that little tingle of fear... It's like, now, where do I feel this? This means that this opportunity is going to allow me to grow and allow me to do bigger and better things. So even like till this day, like speaking engagements and like to being a keynote speaker and things like that, it's not my favourite thing to do. People say, <laughs> oh, just as you're a great speaker. And I always get booked to do all these events. And a good friend of mine, she loves speaking. And I often say, she's like, you love it? And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> I really don't. I don't want to keep asking me. Do you know what I mean? But it's something that I do, but it ultimately brings me out of my comfort zone, you know, and I always say preparation again. We talked about this earlier. So I prepare for my talks and it gives you more confidence. It gives you that more belief. And then you have to also ask yourself the question. They asked for you. They saw something in you. You didn't pitch for this opportunity. They sought you out. So when somebody seeks you out for an opportunity, know that you are of value, know that you are of worth and know that you are an expert within your own right. So for me, I, you know, as in Shonda Rhimes' book, The Power of Yes, 
Um, and she says, I encourage you just to say yes. Spend a year just saying yes to every opportunity that presents your way. And so that's what I do now. I pretty much say yes to pretty much everything, as long as it fits into my, because, you know, for me, having boundaries around my, my children as well and making sure that, you know, I have quality time with them. I'm not spending too much time away from home during the working week. You know, I say yes to a lot of stuff. And I believe that if you put things out into the universe and truly believe um, that you're deserving of them, they will kind of come your way. I remember me saying, okay, I've done TV, I've done radio, you know, I've done print, I've done all this stuff. Actually, I like to be on TV as a presenter. And this is when I was pregnant with my second child, Amariah. So that's the only missing piece now. And then during that year of maternity leave, I had two TV opportunities presented to me. And only because, again, I was going through a stage of, you know what, I'm actually going to be conscious about taking a year off was the only reason why I kind of turned them down. Um, And this time around, I was breastfeeding, so I just didn't want to be able to leave my daughter, um, you know, away for long periods of time. Although they were saying, oh, yeah, we can bring her along. It would just have been going to be too hectic these long days. And I just thought, you know what, this time I'm going to prioritise me and self-care and take that. And what opportunities are for you are for you. So I believe that they'll... You know, if it's meant to be, it will come around again for sure. Justice, thank you so much for your time. There is just so much nuggets that our audience will be able to take away. And it was such an authentic interview. Thank you for opening up. And it was an honour for me to hear you. Thank Thank you you. for inviting me. And I look forward to actually listening to all the guests um, on future episodes. So don't forget, everyone, please visit the show notes and you can download some freebies and also as well of course I have to give it a plug because it is my client's podcast Um, (laughs) review subscribe and download wherever you're listening to podcasts and also it'd be great just to kind of if you have enjoyed today's episode take a screenshot and tag us both on Instagram um, and it'd be great to kind of hear some feedback from you all thank you thank you That's it for this episode and thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this episode inspiring. So please do follow, download and review this podcast, which helps us to expand our reach. I would love you to help us to reach more listeners by taking a screenshot and tagging us on your socials. And you can find links to all my social media in the show notes. Until next time, when I'll be joined by another incredible guest, take care until we connect again. And most importantly, take action.